Here we go, here we go. Fold your hands, close your eyes. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. So uh, here, we, here we go into the rush. We won't meet next week uh, on Saturday because Thanksgiving you'll all be busy, but we'll go after that. Uh, for you who are new, on Wednesday evenings, um, we, so let's see, next Wednesday Eve is a Thanksgiving service, an even song, not a mass. And then the next three Wednesdays after that, there's dinner here at six, and then um, to Zay service at seven. So you should come to dinner, it's fabulous. It's catered in from outside. There will be no green jello with pretzels. I promise <laughs> there will not be, because I know you would go somewhere else if we did that. So it'll be, it'll, it's always something good. It's barbecue one week, and then it's pizza one week. Uh, bring your families, bring your kids, bring your friends. There'll be, you know, 100 or 200 people here. And this amazing transformation happens then, which is all these kids who are tearing around everywhere, you put a candle in their hand and they go in and are dead silent. It's over in half an hour. It's modeled on the Taze community in France. And it's basically scripture, silence, singing, silence, prayer, silence, right? Um, four bursts of that, it's done in half an hour. And the remarkable thing is, is that uh, you can have 50 kids here and they'll all go dead silent for this service if you put fire in their hands. <laughs> so, so far, no tragedies, um, although we do scrape wax from time to time. So there you go. So please, um, please come along if you can. That'll be fun. Uh, questions about anything at all? Otherwise, we just keep going. So I'm trying to talk you into something, of course. But if I don't talk to you, you'll, you'll decide for yourselves, and that wouldn't be good for you, because after all, we're our own worst enemies. And so what I've tried to talk you into is, first, um, that Jesus loves you. And that's a very difficult thing, and we'll talk about how um, hard that is. And that Jesus loves you so much, he tells you about himself, and that's how we normally refer to holiness. Now here's the next thing, that holiness is actually happiness in your life. This is very difficult to believe as well, that, that holiness, because, uh, Vicar, are you here? Ah, oh, the vicar. I need, I need more vicars. Here you go. Marge, you can help me. You're the nicest woman. You take this, these miscreants and sinners, and I'll go over there to the publicans and the backsliders, okay? <laughs> Here you go. So what I'm trying to convince you of is that uh, Jesus not only loves you, but he shows you a way that you could flourish. And of course, nobody believes that because uh, it seems to ruin their fun. This is a very simple thing, right? And if you wanted to know uh, what happiness is, or you wanted to know what holiness is, or you wanted to know who Jesus is, You'd say, well, he says, well, there I am in the Ten. Now, you learn to grow up and say Ten Commandments, and I don't think I said this to you last week. The scriptures don't, in fact, say Ten Commandments. Some editor in a publishing house put that in. If you talk to the vicar who memorizes Hebrew and says it out loud, he's a brilliant little boy. Uh, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say the Ten Commandments. You see, already we have a bias there, because commandments is shape up. No, it says... 
the ten words, right? And another thing, you were taught somewhere, while people were saying ten commandments, that it came with a big exclamation point. It's in the indicative for you English majors. It's just a statement of fact. God is here, here's his name, he'll meet you on the Sabbath. Your life will go well if you don't. Lie, cheat, steal, envy. And if you're faithful to your family, this is going to be beautiful. Hold on, it's going to, we're going to the promised land. So two things, right? One is, it's not commandments in the way that we think of it, kind of finger shake and yelling pastors. And number two, um, it's just a statement of fact. This is how the universe is ordered. I love you so much, it'd be great if you would come along. Now, what we do, of course, with that is disagree. The original sin is, I have a better idea. Or, more specifically, I would be a better God than God. And so Satan comes and says uh, to that first pair in the garden, did God really say? And so with the introduction there is the introduction of unfaith. Now, here's, here's a really important thing for you to remember. So look where you've been. Jesus loves you. Jesus tells you about himself. He tells you about himself in holiness. That holiness is revealed in these ten words, and he invites you to live within them. But, this is very important, every sin starts with a lie. And it's the lie that the devil told in Eden. Every sin starts with this lie. Jesus doesn't really love me. So we started with the story like this. Jesus says to you, comes to you, I love you, you're mine, I created you, I resurrected you, I brought you into the church, I told you about myself, I'd like to hold you dear. And to that, we reply, uh, thank you very much, this is gorgeous. Or we say, um, no thanks, I'll go it alone. Vicar, are you here? I think he may have ascended into heaven. <laughs> so, um, so uh, Daniel, help me here, will you? Be my vicar. Here, hand this out too, because, you know, things change in my head as I'm thinking. So, um, so the Lord says to you, hey, this is the way to go. And then we say, no, I wouldn't do it. So on the one hand, I give you uh, this single sheet from Capon, right? Because we always think sinning would be a great idea. We always think, I'm free, I'm good, I'm autonomous, I can do what I want, I'd be a great God, I'll make up my own laws, 11 through 20. No, here. The reason for not going out and sinning all you like is the same reason for not going out and putting your nose in a slicing machine. Deli image, right? It's dumb, stupid, and no fun. Some individual sins may have pleasure still attached to them, because of the residual goodness of the realities they're abusing. Adultery can indeed be pleasant, and tying one on can amuse. But betrayal, jealousy, love grown cold, and the gray dawn of the morning after are nobody's idea of a good time. And that, you see, is what you're up against. That your good ideas and mine have no future. 
right? Temporarily, things can be fabulous. But in the long term, everything will go to ashes. And so, uh, when Jesus says to you, um, don't have any other gods, or in the New Testament way, follow me, or when uh, the Lord says to you, you know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, because that will ruin every relationship you have with everybody. Right? And if you want, we could just take the front page of any newspaper today and we could identify, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. There was this beautiful article 15 years ago in Barron's about the emergence of gaming, right? And one of the early guys, I think maybe it was from Zynga, but I can't quite remember now, he said, they said, how do you create a great video game? He said, it's easy, just pick one of the seven deadly sins. It's, it's genius. I ask you to analyze any place you see that. Because the seven deadly sins analyze our desires so well, and they tell us what we will become addicted to. Everybody sort of chuckled 15 years ago, and now everybody goes, ooh. Even when we bought our first iPhones, we went to the store and we said, how about parental controls? And then, you know, some very hipster guy looked at me sort of like this. Like, as, like this, you don't know anything about iPhones or children. That's what he was saying to me, right? But he just sort of looked down at me like, and he said, those aren't necessary, so we don't include them. Right? So the reason you shouldn't sin is it's not good for you. It'd be like if you went over to the jewel and put your nose in the slicing machine at the deli. It seems like fun, right? <laughs> I can tell you all the other things that seem like fun, you know. Uh, all you have to do is watch a little TikTok and you'll see all kinds of things that seemed like they were going to be fun. And then you did it and it's a, was a, turned out to be a really bad idea, right? On the other side, <coughs> this little thing from uh, Elizabeth Scalia, right, on the bottom. Hardly anyone believes it, but it's true. And, you know, full disclosure... We actually believe this. So my interest, and I, you know, if I didn't, haven't said my smarty pants, you know, comment yet, I'll say it now. We don't need any more members. I am, I, I've worked late every night this week, and I already got emergency calls to go to the hospital as soon as we're done. We have so many people who need pastoral care, we will never finish. However, we, we don't need any more, well, I mean, we don't need any more, we don't need any more members. I have one more name on the page. What I do need I need every disciple I can find. Which is somebody who will say, I actually believe this. We actually believe this. This isn't sort of bare minimum stuff. And if you need a bare minimum place, I'll help you find one, right? But for you, if you can believe this, and hardly anyone does, obedience brings tremendous freedom to our lives. This is the great difference between, um, you know, being a Christian and not being a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you think sin brings freedom. And if you're a Christian, you think sin brings bondage. It's just this simple, right? If you think that sin brings freedom, you're not a Christian. If you think sin, uh, sin um, brings bondage, that's part of being a Christian. 
Or if I could say it another way, things are better inside Eden than outside Eden. And that, of course, was the temptation. Jesus doesn't really love me. I think I'll go it on my own. Things outside Eden look fabulous. Outside the church, I can be what I want to be. I mean, you can say it a thousand different ways. You're only saying the same thing, which is your single choice in life is to be obedient or disobedient, to live within the gifts or not live within the gifts, to be holy and happy or to be unholy and not happy, to have your nose intact when you go home at 10.30 or by noon, you know, have it in the slicing machine at Mariano's. Your choice, right? Seems like a good idea until you do it. Obedience brings tremendous freedom to our lives, but we can't possibly know that unless we practice it, right? The learning is in the doing. You shouldn't believe me. I mean, erase me from the equation. You know what? I'll, you know, go say the Jesus prayer 10,000 times a day for a year and go to the Eucharist every time it's offered here for the next, you know, 365. I'll meet you back here next year. Your life will be completely different. It'll be unrecognizable to what it is here. The daily Eucharist here saved my life. I would not be here. I would not be a pastor if it wasn't for the daily Eucharist. I would not be because it's not worth it, right? But the touch of Jesus is everything. Obedience is everything. Love is everything. Those are your choices, right? We can't possibly know that unless we practice it. And practicing it is hard and sometimes against all our instincts. Except, as I recently wrote about something else, the hard stuff is also the good stuff. There is no greatness in taking the easier, wider path. So, you know, that's sort of the, all the cards on the table. And if you join here, and then you don't show up, or, you know, you're not at the Eucharist, or you're not tithing, or, you know, you're cranky all the time, you should expect to see me peeking through your window shades. Like this. You'll say something like, the Mormons are here again, but it'll be me. <laughs> Because if you sign up, I'm coming to see you. Now, um, all of that can sound terribly frightening because suddenly Jesus becomes um, your cranky big brother or your bad father or your mean mother or somebody who's always saying to you straighten out. See that? And then we don't really sort of get it. Vicar, are you here? Incarnate vicar, come to me like Jesus appear. Thank you. Now this, what I'm giving you here is short and difficult, but um, no, because I, I got to get that big screenwriter thing. Hey, Daniel, help me again. The redeemed. Uh, this is a hard little bit of theology from Luther. I'm giving it to you for two reasons. One, because you're smart, and two is you shouldn't think that I'm um, just telling you stuff that's not Lutheran. One of, the, one of the odd things that happens to me is that people don't recognize me as a Lutheran. And then I always say to them, that's because you've never read Luther, right? <laughs> it's a little like with the mass that we have. People are like, you got that from the Catholics. I'm, well, Luther was a good Catholic till they kicked him out. So, you know, and we're waiting till they ask us back nicely. So, um, you know, well, that's a pretty Lutheran group if you don't find that humorous. I'm a little nervous about you now. Just mind the point tomorrow, it says one holy Catholic apostolic church. 
and that you believe in it. Now, this is a little bit of hard going, but let me tell you the punchline. And this is, uh, you know, something that will clean up all the way you think about the 10 words. It'll clean up the way you think about your life. It'll clean up, clean up the way you think about Jesus. I said it at the end last time, but I want to say it again. Even to you, Vicar, because, you know, I'm not sure that you know, but every word can be said two, way, two ways, a law way and a gospel way. So I gave you the example last week of the Lord's Supper. Is either the best thing for you or it can kill you, make you sick and kill you, or Jesus coming on the last day, either with a sword in his hand or a flower, right? He brings you flowers as love and greeting. He brings a sword because that's what you chose. Now, here's the thing. Think this way about the 10 words, okay? So the Lord comes to you and says, I really love you. I resurrect you. We're going to promised land. You're just like uh, Abraham coming from Ur. You're just like Moses and the people coming out. You're like the three men coming out of the fiery furnace. I love you. You're mine. Let's go. Follow me. And that doesn't mean like walking over there because follow me, we're going this way. That's what it means. Now think about this. This is first. A human liberty or a human freedom. So freedom has been achieved when the laws are changed while men remain unchanged. So just this is complicated, but just think about it this way. If they suddenly made um, everybody... So last week, I railed about... Nobody in Wheaton stops at stop signs. An Audi, a white Audi, you know, almost hit me coming to Mass in the morning. On, there's nobody on the roads. How can you get hit in Wheaton at 7.30 in front of the eclectic? There's nobody here. There's only two people, him and me. I stopped noticing. And like he rolls through and I missed him by that much. I did actually think in my, I should just go ahead and bash him because I know Steve Chester and I'll be fine. But that is one nice looking Audi. So we would have, there would have been a teaching moment there, but you know, <laughs> because I was going to the Eucharist, I just kind of helped. But if we sat in Wheaton, if they said, if the mayor said, we're listening to you, and so now we get freedom, there's no more stop signs in Wheaton. See, this, this is exactly what this is. It means nobody changed, the laws changed, and now we all feel better about ourselves. Steve Chester, prepare for more business, okay? So this is the first line. Human freedom is when we change the laws, but we don't. So things that used to be forbidden are now free. Things that used to be illegal are not. Take, for example, euthanasia. Talking somebody who's really depressed into killing themselves rather than having treatment and calling that civilization. Um, I visit Auschwitz and see if you feel like that when you're done. We've seen it already. But a Christian liberty has been achieved when we are changed and the law remains unchanged. So the Lord says, don't put your nose in that slicing machine. And then you say, thank you very much. I think I'll move to the chocolate aisle. Step away from the deli, move toward the chocolates. All right, you got it? So the law didn't change, you changed. Um, Christians are free when the law remains unchanged, so that the same law which formerly was hateful to the free, I'm not stopping at stop signs, I'm putting my nose in that slicer, will now become welcome. Oh, that car crash wasn't good for me, and I wish I had my nose back. Because through the Holy Spirit, look, love has been diffused into our hearts. This is Luther, by the way, I just want to point that out to you. 
So here's the thing, and this is the simple kind of conclusion. When God says to you, I'm God and there's no other God, you can say, thank you very much for letting me know. Or you can say, like Adam, I'll have a go on my own. The saddest story, perhaps, in Scripture, if you, you, you know this because you wouldn't be here if you didn't know little Scripture, the saddest story in Scripture, perhaps, is the story where Jesus is wandering with the disciples. They bump into a man, and um, Jesus peers into his heart and says, you're quite a guy. And Jesus says, why don't you join us and be disciple number 13? And anybody remember the conclusion of the story? What's the conclusion of the story? Do you remember? What's he say? He went away sad because he had a lot of money. So Jesus said to him, hey, the best deal in town is being one of the 12 disciples. Hey, we'll make room. You can be number 13, right? I mean, that, that is the saddest story in Scripture. He, he went away sad because he had a lot of money. So that was his choice. He could have Jesus, all of them, an apostle. Or he could, you know, have some cash. He went away sad because he was a man of great wealth, even though he was a man who apparently had a very pure heart, which should then be sort of like a little bit of a warning for all of us, right? Because he really didn't, I mean, I'll just analyze this for you, because he didn't really believe that Jesus loved him that much. And this, of course, is why you sin, and this is why I sin. When I think that I have a better idea, it's because I really don't think Jesus loves me that much. He won't see me through. He won't work this out for my benefit. He's leading me into pain. It seems like more than I can bear. Right? There's all kinds of reasons, but they all boil down to, I don't really believe that Jesus loves me. Right? If you think Jesus loves you, then you follow the commandments, and obedience sets you free. If you think Jesus doesn't love you, then you don't follow the commandments, and you're suddenly in bondage. And you can all just take a moment and think about people you know who are in bondage to something, or maybe yourself, right? That said, Jesus still loves you. And so uh, what happens then, and we're kind of, now we're kind of pushing ahead to next week, is that Jesus takes away your sins, and the only way they can hurt you is if you take them back. That would be you'd be a thief then, you see. Because what's going to happen tomorrow at about um, 8, you know, 39, is that Jesus is going to reach right into you and pull all your sins right out of you. And then I'll say something like, or who's ever the pastor will say something like, uh, in the stead by the command, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're going to say, Amen, which is, let's go. What's the next thing now? So, the reality is, particularly Lutheran reality, is this thing that Luther championed, symbol used to set peccata. We're always a sinner, we're always a saint, right? 
which means every moment is a struggle. That's a more Catholic way of talking about it. Or, you know, um, evangelicals talk about all the decisions they make and accountability and all that. In any case, however you talk about it, this is what's important. Jesus takes away your sins, every last one of them. We can hardly believe it. He takes away all your sins. Don't take them back. So it's hard for you to believe, I know. It's hard for me to believe, too, that tomorrow, uh, when the Eucharist touches my lips, Jesus forgives everything. So when he touches my lips with his body and blood, it's the way he um, touched that dead man uh, on the beer going out of town and he rose up. Or it's like when he touched blind Bartimaeus and he could suddenly see, right? It's like when he touched the apostles at Transfiguration and they awakened to a new life and followed him down the mountain to his crucifixion. That's what happens to you too. So what I don't want you to do is go home and blame the Ten Commandments. This is startlingly important that you would understand that Jesus loves you. He tells you about himself. The way he tells you about himself is in the Ten Commandments. They're a reflection or a revelation of his own divine heart. They're a reflection of holiness. And when we are unholy, when we choose against him, when we don't really believe that he loves us, when we go our own way, the problem is in us, not in him. That said, he loves you, he forgives you, and if it weren't for second chances, we'd all be dead. So this and then that, when we come back, we'll start with the story of the prodigal son, which is the only story in scripture. That story is just told over and over again. We'll, we'll talk about forgiveness and what it means and how to live. But for a moment, I just want to make sure that you leave today with the understanding that these 10 words are your friend, that Jesus was trying to be kind to you. Now, again, Vicar, I need you. There you go, friend. Um, again, uh, you know, for some reason, this startles Lutherans to talk this way. So I gave you a little bit of Luther and I'm going to give you a little bit of the Lutheran Confessions. While the vicar hands this out, I just want to make one other point, especially for you who are Lutherans. Um, you're familiar with this phrase, the law always accuses, right? Which is in fact true. Lutherans make a big deal out of this. The law always accuses, which means the law is always there showing that you're a sinner. That's right, right? So. Um, Third commandment, my worship is always impure. Or, um, you know, eighth commandment, uh, I don't always tell the truth. So my life is always impure. The law is always accusing me. And in fact, if you come to confession, which we do have, you know, largely by appointment, because if I did it kind of every day, I'm afraid I would sit there alone by myself, which would actually be pretty good if you'd keep paying me for it. So, uh, but there'll be confession, and, and, or you can always come to confession, and many people do. And you make a good confession by saying, you know, I've sinned against the first commandment or in this way, or I've sinned against the, the fourth commandment in this way, or the sixth commandment in this way, right? And then my goal in private confession is to leave you smiling. What I want to do is reach into your heart, in the name of Jesus, pull your sins out and let you go home without them. You leave them here. Jesus will clean up after them. So it can happen tomorrow when we're all together. It can happen alone with your pastor. 
what I find is often when people make an appointment and want to talk with me, what they really want is, is absolution. And if we had a stronger tradition of, of um, people coming to their pastor for absolution, we'd be a better church. You remember that the Catholics said about the Lutherans, you people never go to confession. And the Lutherans shot back, we go to confession more than you do, which you see as a really intelligent argument. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Anyway, that said, <laughs> the proof there is that Lutherans always held on to private absolution. And there was a chance for you to talk to your pastor and have him help you toward, you know, I just keep drinking. I, I know that that's sinful and it's destroying everything. God. What now? So the pastor forgives that and then he helps you with the what now. That's what your pastor is good for. Anyway, that you might have the Ten Commandments as your friend. Ah, I didn't even get to where I was going. This can happen. <laughs> Someone once asked, asked me, why don't you? I know that some people avoid my Bible studies because I don't, as they say to me, you don't follow the outline. <laughs> now here's the thing that you need to understand. Why would I follow the outline if I gave you the outline? <laughs> this is a little like saying to me, we didn't start dinner with dessert. And I would say to you, why would we start dinner with dessert? We'll have dinner, the outline, and then dessert too. Calm down. Maybe. Or maybe this is just an exercise in sophisticated self-justification. <laughs> because, you know, every word can be used two ways. Anyway, um, the law, in fact, always accuses you, but I give you Romans 8.1, and you can look up for yourself. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, of course, the law accuses you. It says to you, um, you didn't put God first, and you shouldn't have thought that way about your brother. And you seem to be green with envy, just that little tinge. You know, we were hoping for something more golden in the way of the apostles and Jesus. It always accuses you, but it doesn't condemn you because to condemn you is to destroy you. This is very important. My first difficult vicarage question, is my vicar still here? I'm sitting with all the old ladies at my vicarage congregation. You would think they would just throw me a little puff piece, right? What do they say to me? Pastor, does God punish Christians? I'm like reading my first week, I just got here. <laughs> So what did I do, Vic? Well, how would I answer this? What would you, if you just came from somewhere and they asked, the old ladies asked you that question, and you know, if you don't ask this correctly, there's going to be no green jello and pretzels for you all year long, right? So this is a big deal. What's the answer? Yes. We should vote on this. <laughs> hey, we're Lutherans because we think we can vote on everything because, you know, we think that sins make us free. But that's another story. So, um... Half of them thought God punished them all the time. Half of them said, God would never punish me. He loves me. Which is clearly we don't know what punishment means. You're a good boy. I was at your wedding. Your daddy loves you. His father said to me, this is the best line I've ever had. Just a little. We're standing out, looking at the mountains. His lovely bride's about to go. All the guests are there. They are grilling something wonderful over here but we're rural 
And his dad looks over at me, there's just the two of us, and he says to me, if a bear wanders through the ceremony, don't be alarmed. <laughs> now I'm fully vested. And I thought to myself, now this is odd and no one's ever said this to me. So I said the polite thing, which was, if a bear does wander through the ceremony, what should I do? His father said, don't worry, there are people here with bear guns. <laughs> I thought, well, this should be an interesting sort of wedding. <laughs> anyway, your father loves you because he provides bear guns at the proper moment. But did your father ever punish you? He seems like a nice man. Can you think of one time when he punished you? Yes. Just one. But see, it happens. <laughs> you punish people if you love them when they need to be punished so that they'll survive. You say to your children, don't touch that, don't jump off that, or, you know, <laughs> put that chainsaw down, right? You punish people if you love them. You condemn them if you want to destroy them. And so we say, condemned to death. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's the thing, very deftly, Jesus sort of looks at you and said, uh, says, um, you know, well, I can't give you a full blast for that because um, I died on the cross for the sin, but wisdom isn't cheap and we pay for it with pain. And it'd be good for you to learn this lesson now so you don't do it in triplicate later. And so a bit of suffering this morning in my devotions, Anthony of the desert popped up, St. Anthony. Uh, so, you know, St. Anthony moved into the desert to escape all the um, cosmopolitan temptations of a big city. And then when he got to the desert, he found out that it was worse than before. He writes about images of dancing girls going through his head when he's all alone in the desert. So there's Anthony, you know, he's a holy man, struggled mightily, a holy man who struggled mightily. And he tells about a vision where Jesus comes to me and he says what you've often said to Jesus was, where the hell up were you? Right? He, Anthony says to Jesus, you know what I've been through, where were you? And Jesus sort of calmly says to him in this vision, well, I was right here all the time. Punishment or suffering without destruction. That's legit in what you're entering into. Because let's face it, you're a work in progress, and some of you, you know, we're gonna have to get out the heavy equipment. <laughs> I know you're talking about that table, Max, and it's okay. <laughs> but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, so he's not meant, he doesn't mean to destroy you. When you suffer, God won't destroy me. This is the ultimate act of faith. When you're in terrible pain, your choice is Jesus loves me or Jesus doesn't love me. It's the same as it is every other day of your life. Jesus loves me or doesn't love me. If you can say Jesus loves me, you're going to be fine. And if you say Jesus doesn't love me, you're in deep danger, which is why you should surround people who are in pain so they don't say the wrong thing, which is why a community is important, right? Which is why we come at 830 so you can have friends. So if you're suffering now, You'll have people to help you. Where were all my friends? We were all right here. Right? It's all the same. It just happens over and over again. 
So now for you who uh, you know want the data, here we go. This is a little easier than the last one because it's a little more, a little more, um, it's a little more accessible, right? But what I want to suggest to you is that the same word, for example, don't have any other gods. If you agree with it, faith agrees. If you agree with it, it's the best thing that you've ever been told. If you disagree with it, it'll kill you, right? So look down. Uh, you can read the rest of this another time. But this is from the conclusion of the Ten Commandments. Luther writes this, um, 1528-ish. This is written primarily for pastors. A small catechism was written for lay folks, the large catechism. But he preached it through three times before he wrote it down because if it's in the catechism, it should be solid ground. So look down, one, two, three, fourth paragraph, right? Now, as we said before, these words, the Ten Commandments we're talking about here, contain both a wrathful threat and a friendly promise. That is, they contain both law and gospel, or they can be used as both law and gospel. Not only to terrify and warn us, stop that, that will kill you, but also to attract and allure us. Hardly anybody talks about the Ten Commandments that way, as a lure, as bait in the water, as bringing you into something wonderful. Nobody talks that way. But there it is, right there from Luther in the large catechism, right? Keep going to the bottom. Um, <clears throat> Therefore, they, these words ought to be received as an esteemed, sorry, let me start again because I can't read. These words, therefore, ought to be received and esteemed as a serious matter to God because he himself here declares how important the commandments are to him and how strictly he'll watch over them, fearfully and terribly punishing, there it is, all who despise and transgress his commandments, and again, how richly he will reward bless and bestow all good things on those who prize them and gladly act and live in accordance with them. Lutherans will hardly ever say that, that if you keep the commandments, God will bless you because you know we would hate to think we were earning our salvation. This is not about earning your salvation. This is about loving God and living in holiness and rejoicing in the freedom that comes to you in Christ and avoiding the balance. That's what this is about, right? So you can sort of um, read the rest here, but the, the, the lesson is the same. That every word can be said two ways. It can be said a law way and a gospel way. So God can say to you, um, come to church on Sunday. And you can say, well, um, I'm very quite busy. To which you'll have one kind of life. And then if you go, you'll have another kind of life. Um, it's, it's kind of that simple. Or, you know, I mean, this is easy. Be faithful to your spouse. If you're faithful to your spouse, you have one kind of life. If, you have, if you're not faithful to your spouse, you're going to have another kind of life, right? And all the things we can do to try to suggest that we can normalize unfaithfulness in any direction. Yeah, I mean, you're just fooling yourselves. It just, it's just going to turn, turn out miserable. Well, here's the thing. This is really important. You, you pay your money, you take your choice. I, mean, I just want to be so upfront about this. Jesus is offering a particular way to see and live life. 
He's offering it as a gift, and he's claiming it's divine. He's telling you that this is the way to live in bliss now and forever. That's the deal. And he's here because he loves you, and he wants you to live with him forever in warmth, in joy, in peace, with your family and your friends, with the saints and the apostles, with the angels and archangels. It's all yours, and it costs you not one cent. It's given to you free as a gift. It's yours. Here we go. And we spend our lives saying, I'd rather not, or I have a better idea, or let's try this, or ooh, that pinches me just a touch. Okay, I get all of that. You know, I've seen it for decades. Um, the proposition lies before you. And this is what it is to be a disciple. So you make disciples by baptizing and teaching. The first week, this is what we do, right? And this is what we try to do here. Part of the reason St. John is so fabulous is because so many people have bought into this. Part of the reason St. John is so painful is that we haven't bought into it enough. And so even as a congregation, you know, we live in it, and yet, you know, not all of it. But there's hope for us because we come every week and we kneel down and we expose our necks the way you would to an executioner, right? And so you sort of show them, uh, you know, this is where the queen knights people, right? Or now the king, you know, you kneel down, you expose your neck. And when they knight you with a sword, the choices are one, they can tap you gently and say, stand up. Or two, they can remove your head and have the servants clean up the mess. That's precisely what you'll do tomorrow when you kneel down and say, I'm a damn sinner. Then Jesus will say, I love damn sinners. There's probably potential here. How you doing? You doing okay? You got questions about any of that? I frighten you out of all questions. Daniel, you're a good boy. I can see why your father never punished you. What's the, what's the question? Um, just like evangelizing two people who have been baptized already but are walking away, like using the Ten Commandments but not out of judgment, how do you do that well or with, like, how do you be firm but also with love? Beautiful. So um, how do you use the Ten Commandments to someone who's, been baptized, so we're going to presume Christian and just kind of wandered, right? So I'm going, to, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to bump and nudge the language a little bit so we just use the biblical language because judgment, again, can be this am ambiguous, right? Judge for, judge against, right? So how about let's try this. How do you um, use the Ten Commandments to accuse people, just use this language, to accuse people of being sinful with the intent of bringing them back, right? The, my answer is deftly. So Luther says a couple of things. If anybody can tell the difference between the law and the gospel, they immediately get a doctor's hat, right? You get an automatic PhD if you can tell the difference between them. Just for your own sakes, the law is, it weighs, it measures, it calculates, it ascertains, it accuses and condemns. The gospel gives graces, restores, enlivens, resurrects, blesses, is free gift. So how do you use this in two ways with someone who's gone off track? Um, vicar, aphorism. You can nuke a parishioner, but... The half-life of a nuclear strike is a very long time. Perfect. What? He went to, he went to, 
He went to seminary to learn from books. He came to Vickers to learn from us. Here's, Vickers' entire life is run by aphorisms that come from me primarily. And the other, so here's the thing. You can nuke a parishioner, but the half-life of a nuclear strike is a very long time, which of course means you can win temporarily, but there'll be a meeting or an engagement or a wedding or a funeral where you'll have to answer for your nukedom. So um, if you launch a nuclear strike, it takes a long time to get out of it, right? This is very simple, simple. It's the same for you, right? So I'll give you another one. Vicar, your aphorism for today, use the least force necessary for you. You only use the law in accusation and or condemnation until it pinches. You'll have to watch carefully for the pinch because someday when you have children, you may have one who has a straight face. Um, the Guliami girls were outside this morning. Now this was witnessed by the president of the congregation and they were texting. And so I said to them, are you texting boys? Because if you're texting boys, I could help you with this because I've had boys and girls. And I said, if you are texting boys, bring them by to me for pastoral approval. I can help you. The oldest Guliami girl did what, you know, many other children, even my own, have done to me. She put on a very straight face. She nodded along and said, yes, pastor. And she thought inside her head, and I can read her heart. She was saying to herself, leave me alone, step away from me. And as soon as you step away, I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> which may be what you encounter when you go to your friend or wanderer or child and say, that's not good for you. So a couple of things. The least force necessary. Force is only applied until it makes a difference. You can check to any engineer here, you know. How big a wrench do you actually need? <laughs> how big a hammer? Get a bigger hammer is not always the answer, right? The least force necessary, deftly applied, like a surgeon, you know, and um, watch for signs of the pinch. Then stop with the law and soak the person in the gospel. I'll tell you a story. Um, so here's my answer. When we were at Westfield House in England studying, um, there was a little boy who was stealing the Sunday school offering every week. <laughs> you sure you want to work with children? <laughs> Everybody knew it was him, but he was so clever they could never catch him. So Ron Feuerhahn calls this kid in, sits him down across the desk, says to him, we think you've been stealing the money from Sunday school. Britishly indignantly, he says, I've not. Ron said, you should really fess up. And by the way, tell us how you do it because we haven't been able to catch you. Fuji said, not I. And then cleverly, Ron said, you know, if you have been stealing the money from the Sunday school, we still love you. The kid burst into tears and he emptied his pockets on Ron's desk. The perfect application of law and gospel, right? Perfect. So whatever you do, it'll look something like that. Just enough. Here's the thing. Deep down, we all know that we don't measure up. 
We all know that we deserve to be hated. We all know that we're not holy. And we all know where we're going is not taking us. I have tons of friends who are caught in all kinds of sins. And when I talk to them about it, they just say to me, I'll sort it out later. Right? Or I know what this is doing to me, but I'll take it now. Picker, there's an aphorism here somewhere that I've given to you that sounds like, at the end of the day, you can't make anybody do anything. Have I given you that yet? Yeah. I thought so. At the end of the day, you can't make anybody do anything. You know, I know men who have beaten their boys as a way of disciplining them. It works until they're about 17 or 18, get bigger, they're old men, knock them out with one punch and go and join the Marines and they never see their kid again. We all choose the lives we have. You can't make anybody do anything, at least not for a very long time. Not unless there's a lot of you. And every regime change in the world is proof of that. So, what's a better way to do it than the way of the world? Whether you're talking about nations or your children. The law, deftly applied, surgically applied, just enough because the length of a half strike is a very long time. And always, always the hope of the gospel. Tramping out the vineyards where the grapes of wrath are stored, right? Who would rush toward that? If you know that when they catch you, they're going to kill you, why would you surrender? Um, Long ago, far away, this tells you how old I am. One of the first hijackings of an aircraft that kind of popularized. I mean, I know aircraft have been hijacked from forever, but one of the first large political hijackings were some Arabs who boarded, I think, in Jerusalem, an LL flight. Um, they took over quite quickly, flew to Cairo. I don't know if anybody else is kind of old enough to remember this. And they landed the plane, and immediately negotiations um, began. And if you've ever been through you know, if you've ever been through customs or checks in Israel, you know what this is going to be like, right? And there's nobody like the Israelis for a, you know, security check. So they surround the plane in Egypt, and they begin to negotiate, because it's full of people, right? And of course, what are the possibilities? You can blow it up, you can kill everybody, you can kill them one by one, but it's surrounded by troops, and it's surrounded by news cameras, right? And um, they said... What would it take for you to get off the plane and let everybody go? And they said, a news conference, which they gave them and everybody went free. So in hostage negotiations, Vicar, of which you'll have many in the church, (laughs) always leave a way out, right? Always leave people a way out. There was a guy. I use this for Ash Wednesday probably 12 years ago as an example. There's a famous guy whose name escapes me now who lived in the, you know, know, there's a subculture in New York City. You think this stuff is phantom, but there's a subculture in New York City that lives in the subways. And um, there was a guy who grew up in the subways, pushing and pulling in different directions. And um, in his spare time, he... um, did graphic novels when graphic novels were just emerging. And he got famous. And he got rich enough to move up top. And then he found that since he'd grown up 
you know, in the subways. He didn't really fit in. He went back down. And he was killed in a freak fire on, you know, underground in New York City. And when they went for his stuff, you know, they found, you know, of course, all these interesting drawings and interesting things, but also a diary. And in the diary, you know, ironically, there was kind of a list of rules for living underground. And one of the rules was always have another way out. Genius, right? He didn't have another way out. It killed him. Always have another way out. That's what you do as a pastor. That's what you do as a friend or a father. You provide another way out. What does Jesus do? He provides another way out, right? There's this way out. You can be completely holy. That doesn't seem to be working out so well. There's this way out. You can be completely forgiven, right? Well, always provide another way out. So when you do this with a friend or with anybody else, you're married now and you have a lovely wife, but you know, you've been married, what, not quite a year. I would say by the time you're married five years, you'll probably have probably one tiff, maybe two. I'm gonna help you on the way out. Kirby can confirm this for me because she can tell you how adept I am at this. <laughs> when she doesn't react, that's when I'm in trouble. Always leave a way out for your children, for your friends, for any sinner. That's what Jesus does. What's the cross? The cross is a way out, right? So as little force as possible, only until it pinches, and then the law never comes without the gospel, and the gospel is always more. So last thing, sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You know that text? Sin abounds, that word means two plus two plus two. Vicar, I'm gonna have you check the Greek on this. Do you know this? No, do you know this story that I'm about to tell? Check this Greek. The Greek, sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Sin abounds, the word is for addition, arithmetic. Two plus two plus two plus two. Sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It's a different word used for multiplication, exponential, which means your sins grow like this, and Jesus' grace grows like this which means he soaks the landscape and forgives everything. There's always a way out, right? Okay, um, two down, four to go. Uh, two topics down, four to go. But we're only through the first four lines of the liturgy. So, you know, by 2024, maybe 2025, things should work out for all of us. Um, I won't see you next week. Then... I'll see you the next Saturday after that, and then we'll sort of test the waters, right? We'll see how you're, we always feel like we can go all the way till the Saturday before Christmas, and then you kind of, people are kind of like, so we'll, but we'll see, okay? Um, take a catechism if you need one, take a Bible if you need one, get in touch with me if you need me, and um, please try to come, you know, it's sort of, the reason St. John works and is kind of different is because people commit, right? And um, I used to lie awake a lot more worrying about the people that didn't commit, but I've realized over the years that there's not too much I could do with that other than help them get kind of somewhere into something. But at least for here, you know, and whenever we have problems, it's because, you know, we have to do exactly what we've talked about today, which is to confess and, and be forgiven and recommit. I mean, that's really the, the deal, right? So um, we're kind of inviting you into that. And if you want to stay and play, that would be fabulous. But it takes a little while because I don't want to have to break the engagement at some point, and you don't either, right?
because I'm not giving the ring back. I'm just saying. All right. All right. I, not this, not next Saturday, but the Saturday after. I'll see you back here. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, love you. See you soon. Ping me if you need me.